crime for defaming the prophet Muhammad for telling the truth about him. Now in her book, The Truth Is No Defense, Wolf tells her story of growing up in Kuwait and Iraq as a daughter of her Austrian ambassador. And later as an adult, she herself became an ambassador. She returned where she took on a very similar position to what her father had held. And as a result, she was knowledgeable enough to speak with authority on the Muslim faith. She knew it and studied it quite well. And so when she returned to Australia as a wife and a mother to resume a normal life, uh, she began to teach seminars on her experience and what she had learned. And one topic that especially concerned her was not just the incompatible values of Islam with Western culture or the polygamy or the male dominance or both the fact that it was acceptable to take very young girls as wives. That was one of her big issues. The practice was justified because Muhammad himself had many wives. And one he married at age six when he was 56 years old and he consummated the marriage when she was nine. Now it's well documented. It's not a secret. It's in the Mormon sources, in the Mormon works. Several Hadiths speak about it and they have the name for her and her ages and everything. It's all there. It's no big secret. And so at her seminar she spoke to that issue and how that bothered her. For good reason. It should. And a reporter from a left-wing magazine attended one of her seminars and heard her account of Muhammad's marriage to this child and wrote an article condemning wolves of Islamophobia. And the article prompted charges of a hate crime that were brought against Wolf, and she was confident she would win her case because all the facts were on her side. The truth was clear and evidence. It was not going to be hard to make the case. So he and her lawyer were eager to go to court, and surprise of all surprises, she was found guilty. Now the court ruled that even though what she was saying was accurate and true, here was their phrase, the truth is no defense. They said that. In other words, they agreed that though everything she said in the seminar was true and accurate, it didn't matter. Social justice trumps truth. Do you hear that? Social justice trumps truth. Now I think that simple phrase summarizes much of the debate taking place in our victim culture and the examples are limitless and I can't go over all of them except to say I want to highlight what that implies and what that means. For instance, I know of nobody who was not disturbed some months ago when the video showed the careless murder of George Floyd. Nobody looked at that and goes, oh that, that's acceptable, that's okay. People rightfully protested and objected to what had happened, and they should. The narrative that was promoted, that this was common to the U.S. due to racism, that this is an ongoing thing, it happens all the time. And yet, when we look at these kind of incidences, the CBC reports that of 104 shootings by police to civilians, only nine were of unarmed black men, and most of those were not innocent passive victims. And yet the stories portrayed that thousands of such events happen every year. It's systemic. It's going on all the time. By highlighting this false narrative, a Marxist group has sabotaged legitimate protest under the name of Black Lives Matter. Now let me tell you about the organization. Nobody is objecting to the idea that Black Lives Matter. Of course they do. That's a no-brainer. 
And I would even go far as to say, if there have been abuses in the past, maybe extra effort needs to be made to try to accommodate and adjust to that. Of course, black lives matter. But that phrase has been sabotaged and taken over by an organization that calls themselves Black Lives Matter. And it's no secret. They don't make it a secret at all. It's no secret that it's a Marxist group. It's no secret that that's the case that seeks to overthrow the system and replace it with their own ideology. If you go to the website of Black Lives Matter, you will see their statement and purpose of what they're trying to accomplish. For instance, notice their logo. One is of the Communist Party. The other is Black Lives Matter. Does anybody but me see a similarity to those things? That logo was used by the Soviet Union, and their website has it on there. And the website states their Marxist agenda, which includes the elimination of capitalism, the destruction of the nuclear family, the elimination of the police, and the takeover of private property. Two recent videos show Black Lives Matter leaders stating in public, for instance, Lila Sinclair, and you can go on YouTube and you can see her whole speech. She was in front of the federal courthouse in Portland. She said this, my name is Lila Sinclair. I am an Afro-Indigenous, non-binary local organizer here in Portland, Oregon, organizing for the abolition of not just the militarized police state, but also the abolition of the United States as we know it. Another BLM eliminator, this one's in New York, Hawk Newsom, he was on a TV interview and said this, if my country does not give us what we want, we will burn down this system and replace it. Now earlier he said in a public setting, give black people their rights or we will burn this country to ashes. Now if it was true that they're not getting their rights, and maybe that is true, but is that the answer? Both Sinclair and Newsom are addressing intense and destructive anger that is driven by the Marxist victim narrative that we have been addressing in the last few months. We learn that the victim narrative sees a systemic conflict between the privileged and the oppressed. And you can see it on the chart that's up there. On the top is the privileged, the bottom is oppressed, and they see everything as a constant ongoing tension and conflict between them, and the oppressed need to take over of, of the privileged. Therefore, by their logic, any action done by the victim is justified because of the oppression that they have experienced. In this Vic narrative, the more oppressed you are, the more virtue that you have. So if I'm a victim, I'm the one that has virtue. If you are privileged, you are bad. And that's not an opinion, that's what they will say. In response to this narrative, we've been looking at the book of Philippians written by Paul from a brutal, unjust Roman prison. But instead of acting like a helpless, embittered victim, he encourages us to have the mind of Christ, which is humble and sacrificial in its love. And last night we looked at this admonition to the quarreling women to have the mind of Christ, where he said, Ariel, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We learned last week that our peace comes from giving things over to God through prayer, who controls all things and in rejoicing in his presence. This morning I want to expand on this and find that what we think is a vital part of experiencing peace. In other words, thoughts that you're having even right now. So we're going to ask this question, how are we to think when we face adversity and conflict in life? We're going to look at three things. That we should have positive, hopeful thoughts that focus on truth. Don't focus on the victim mindset. Oh, poor me, look what's been done to me. 
focus on positive, hopeful thoughts. We should do the positive things that Paul did, we'll learn. And thirdly, we should positively experience the presence of God. So let's look at the three responses to our question, how are we to think when we face adversity and conflict in life? And the first one is this, we should have positive, hopeful thoughts that focus on the truth. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now we must remember the context where he has said to find peace we must have the mind of Christ and let our requests be made known to him. It applies that peace and contentment are based on our thoughts and our attitudes not on our circumstances. People can have perfectly full lives and privilege and still be miserable because they haven't dealt with what the real heart of the problem is. This brings to mind 2 Corinthians 10.45 says, The weapons we fight are not with the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. We can also look at Colossians 3, 1 to 3, which says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where God is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Notice he gives us eight things to think about. And each one of them implies something to avoid. For instance, he says, think on things that are true. Whatever is true. It means whatever is real, whatever is reliable. It means to avoid lies and distortions that go with anger and depression. When I do a seminar on handling life's emotions, I give out a list of ten cognitive distortions of what we tend to do. Sometimes it's mind reading or overgeneralization or emotional reasoning. And we go through each one of those and we talk about how what we think matters. And we need to just go through the distortions to sort out what the truth is. Now the truth may not be desirable. In other words, sometimes the truth is harsh. Sometimes it's even unpleasant. But we can live with it. And you can even find peace within those hard times. But he also goes on and says, whatever is noble, whatever is worthy of respect and honor, which means to avoid what is degrading and dishonoring. Or we talked about what is right. It conforms to defined objective moral standard. It avoids injustice. For instance, Proverbs 18.1 says this, In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. You ever experience that? You hear somebody give their case, go, yeah, wow, this is bad, that person, awful evil person there. And then the other person speaks up and go, wow, maybe it's not quite so simple as I thought it was. Whatever is pure, high moral character, avoid decadence and immorality. Whatever is lovely, it's pleasing and agreeable, avoid strife and jealousy. Whatever is a good report, it builds up and attributes worth. So we avoid gossip and bitterness and envy. Whatever is a virtue, behavior showing high moral standards, valor. It means avoiding low, degrading standards, cowardice. And then finally he closes with whatever is worthy of praise. Think on these things. It means to speak well of something or someone. Stop dehumanizing people. That is one of the greatest threats that we see is when we dehumanize people. What we think 
is fundamental to personal and corporate peace. It starts here. It starts with what you think. It starts with what you believe in your heart. And in the Christian faith, our thoughts are directed toward positive, hopeful thoughts that are grounded in truth. And how do we discern that truth? Because we are told in the Christian faith that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We start with him. Now, in our contemporary culture, we find ourselves with two dominant conflicting ideologies from two dead white men. Maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't. One I think you've probably heard of, the other I'm not so sure. John Stuart Mill, he wrote the book On Liberty, and he says this, He who knows only his own side of his case knows little of that. His reasons may be good and no one may be able to refute them, but if he is equally unable to refute the reasons on the opposite side, if he does not so much as know what they are, he has no grounds for preferring any position. Meaning, you need to know the other position well if you're to refute it. I've always had a policy. I want to know a position, a doctrine, a belief, as well as that other person does before I try to debate it or interact with it. I think there's wisdom in that. And unfortunately, we've lost that. Mill felt the pursuit and discovery of truth precedes all else. He realized debate and opposition were part of the discovery process. And this is consistent with what Paul is saying. He says, whatever is true, think of these things. How do we discern truth? We go through that process, but our quest, our goal, our objective is to know what truth is. There's a second man, and maybe you've heard his name, Karl Marx. And he says this, the philosophers may have interpreted the world in various ways, but the point is to change it. He says we need a revolution to overthrow existing systems. Debate is not welcome. It's not part of it because the whole goal is to change it. To what? Who knows? But it's to change it. And he lays it all out in Das Kapital. And you see it later in the Communist Manifesto. And Engels, his cohort, has written several books as well in, in destruction of the nuclear family. And unfortunately, Karl Marx's ideas have been tried numerous times, and they always lead to the very same consequence. And it's not a good one. Question is, what kind of world do we want? One with or without debate in this quest for truth, where I am taking a person that I believe has something false but I'm learning and listening and then I find the rebuttal in, in the quest for truth that ultimately is found in Jesus Christ. In the past, schools like Yale University, they were started as a Christian university. Yale was started to train pastors as was Harvard University. That was their original purpose. And when you walked into Yale and walked into the gate and the courtyard, you would see over this big arch Lux et Veritas, light and truth. By the 1990s, that was their purpose. That was their objective for most of their existence. And by the 1990s, universities began to change. In fact, that Lux et Veritas was common at the universe. That was the common focus, the search for truth. And that changed by the 1990s, where universities began to change toward making social justice as the primary purpose. So they went from making truth as their primary objective to social justice, to change the world. And it set emotion, a set of changes 
that is now manifest in most all universities in Western civilization. And that change is toward Marxism. But it's exposed to key problem. No university can pursue both truth and social justice. You hear me? They have to choose truth or social justice. We found that social justice in the university presently always trumps truth. How? Let me explain. There's a Greek word, telos. It applies that there's an end purpose or goal of all objects or things. The purpose of social justice is equality of race and gender. Uh, just across the board, everything is equal, everything is the same. Now the problem is, all these different things within it interact. And one field can affect its telos into another and sometimes corrupts it. Let me give you an example. What's the telos of a doctor? We have some doctors here. Maybe you, you, Some doctors, you may know what that is. Any doctors know what that might be? What's your purpose? To heal. To heal. But what if I corrupted that by saying your purpose is profit? It's, it, it then brings a corrupting influence to the other purpose, the other motive, and that's exactly what social justice brings into the quest for truth. When social justice injects its telos into everything, it can lead to disaster because it motivates reason. It shapes the conclusion we're trying to draw as, because as a people, as we have, we're not very objective as a whole. We start with a feeling and then we seek evidence to support it. We begin to draw evidence that supports our preconception, the feeling. For example, a study showing caffeine leads to cancer has coffee drinkers trying to prove it wrong. <laughs> I like my coffee. The study's got to be flawed. I'll give you another one. What do you see on the left side? 13? B? Okay. What if I gave you a nickel for every time that you were to see a 13? What would you find? 13. Otherwise, you would probably see a B. In a similar way, we easily see things that support our politics. We always find evidence to support our position. Our bias propagates pleasing falsehoods. Our only protection is humility and to be open to disconfirmation to remove some bad research, to be able to say, oh, wow, that seems to be true. Maybe I was wrong. And that requires humility. God forbid that we would be humble. That used to be the standard at universities. And that openness stopped in the 1990s. What changed? In the 1960s, there was a one-to-two ratio of politically right-to-left professors. In other words, there wasn't a balance, but at least it was not so skewed that there were not right professors that were part of it, meaning that changed by 1996 when they studied where they found the ratio was 1 to 17. And in some universities, it was 1 to 16 in the more liberal universities that placed the greatest priority on social justice. Meaning, the greater the priority on social justice, the more likely it will be, be very narrow in its view. All undergraduates are exposed to less intellectual diversity than at any other time in history. If you go to a university now, you will be exposed only to one side. And they will justify it under the name of social justice. We're trying to change the world to our favor. An orthodox view of the left are more strongly held, but they're less weakly supported. 
So people don't even know how to support their view. They don't even know what to do if a person comes with an opposing idea. It's foreign to them. They don't understand it. Because everybody at my university, all my professors, believe this side of it. And what it has done is make students walk on eggshells. You dare not disagree with the prevailing culture. You dare not go against it. Many become intellectually fragile. And if they hear something that offends them, they claim, you invalidate my existence, which to them is the same as violence. You may as well just beat me over the head with a bat as to say that, even though it could be perfectly true. It shapes what people take in school as they're drawn toward these trendy topics. It has led to teachers being afraid of students for saying the wrong thing. The use of video cameras or phones changes things even more. Kids are no longer exposed to challenging ideas, to have to know how to debate. It activates an orthodoxy of secular sacredness. They have their own sacred ideas that cannot be questioned. And what is the sacred as sacred at the university? In years past, what was sacred was the quest for truth. But that's changed. Now it's the victim. People are divided to be to good and bad based on their victim status. In the last few years, Muslims and transgenders were added to this group of victims. You know in the pre your presence of victim culture sacredness, when any little thing you say or do sets off a firestorm, a protest, a riot. And in a victim culture, people are intolerant of insults and disagreements. You do not deal with it yourself, meaning if I'm offended, I don't just simply try to debate and rebuke it. I will go to an authority, a president, or a dean, and I will demand that they deal with it, that they punish them. And if they don't punish them, then they will punish the authority. Here's the issue. There can never be peace in a victim culture. It can't happen because you're always a victim. And they're always the oppressor. Victimhood is eternal. And the effect is that people you're trying to help become morally weak and dependent. And you can't have healthy debate and discussion. Because you see, you need conflict and disappointment to grow. Let me repeat that statement. We need conflict and disappointment to grow. We don't grow to mature people without it. The Bible says that over and over again of what produces character. There's an old phrase that went like this, what does not kill you makes you stronger. Ever heard that one? Now it may or may not be true. I certainly don't want to be tested to, you know, to the point of near death. How do you come away from that strong? I don't know. But the concept was basically this. When heaven confers a great responsibility, there's going to be testing and hardship involved. Talim Taleb calls it anti-fragile. Systems increase in strength as they are tested. Bones need to be tested. A bone that's not tested will weaken. Immune systems that are not attacked with different viruses cannot develop immunities. So if you bubble wrap children, they become fragile, not stronger. And yet since the 90s, most cable TV and cell phones and everything else, helicopter parenting has increased. There's no longer a time for unsupervised kids. How many of you people that are a little older remember you'd go out to the park and you'd play and you'd see your parents for hours? Nobody cared. Now, my kid's been gone for 15 minutes. Where is he? It's changed. There is no longer unsupervised time for kids. The greater the victim, the weaker the person. 
Let me give you an example of what we're talking about here. It's been demonstrated that women are not well represented in the STEM field. STEM meaning science, technology, engineering, and mechanics. They're not as well represented. The overwhelming number are men. And it's been argued by the social justice warriors that this is a result of discrimination, that there's systemic discrimination that keeps women from these fields. And Lawrence Summers, who was the president of Harvard, was asked to weigh in on this issue in 2004 to address that concern. And as a careful scholar, he did what scholars are supposed to do. He looked at all the different considerations, all the issues, and he concluded that there are various causes of which discrimination is one. But he didn't feel it was the dominant one. He also demonstrated that there's a difference in the spread of high Q scores that is larger for men in the certain ends of things based on scientific data and research. He did not argue that men are smarter than women, but that smarter men tend to be drawn to these fields. The ones that are quite smart tend to be drawn in this direction. It wasn't taken well. It was taken to mean that he is saying that men have better IQs than women. It's not what he said, but he was forced to resign because he did not follow the victim culture mindset and no one stood up for him and what he said was factually true based on science but he had blasphemed one of the sacred values of the victim culture and the message is clear you accept our position or you will suffer they will destroy you and they have done it to many people now here's the key point correlation does not imply causation let me explain that for instance we found out that as autism increases, so does organic food sales. Any relation? No. Just two interesting things that happen side by side. Or here's another example. People who have more sex make more money. Any relation? No. One does not cause the other. There are other variables. Social justice makes the mistake of minimizing these variables. And that's what social justice bigger problem is. They narrow it in on one thing. Discrimination, discrimination, discrimination. And sometimes it is part of the issue, but often it's far more complicated than that. There are other variables that they ignore that are, may have more to bear than that alone. Does one cause the other? No. There are different variables. Social justice makes the mistake of minimizing or ignoring these other variables. For instance, they argue that if your inputs are all equal, the outcome should be the same. And we agree with that. If a woman works a particular job, the same man the job would work, she should get equal pay. Nobody should refute that. Equal pay for equal work. It's not disputable. But what if the inputs are not the same? What then is the fair share? There are two parts to social justice that are often ignored. There is a contrast between people being treated differently because of race or sex or whatever versus seeking equal outcomes for all groups. They're two distinct things. For example, you have your inputs, there's Mary's inputs, and there's John's inputs. They may not all have the same inputs, but they're saying you should always get the same output. Meaning, I may not work as hard as you. I may not have taken the time to get the education. I may not have taken the time to work and learn how to do it, but I expect an outcome that you, the same pay that you get. We can observe, for example, 
the suspension rates for boys far exceeds that of girls. It's a known fact. Boys get in trouble far more than girls. They get kicked out of class. They get disciplined far more than that. It's, it's, it's well known. And a social justice warrior argued that suspension rates must be made equal so we will suspend fewer boys and make more girls suspend them to fill the level, to, to level it out. But if you try to make them the same, it's not fair. Similarly, Obama saw that punishment rates are dis disparate by race. It was found that blacks are more likely to be imprisoned. And they required a new plan to try to balance it out so that they are the same. Is that fair? Not really. See, when social justice demands equal outcomes for all groups without concern for inputs or third variables, it becomes unjust. Demands for equal treatments versus outcomes make a difference. Fairness is when you have social justice should be in the bigger scale of justice for have fairness. The right and left often see differences. There are too many variables to supply to limit the problem of discrimination, but social justice is not interested in the variables. They're not interested in the truth, and this is the part I'm trying to say. Social justice isn't interested in the truth. They're interested only in equality of outcomes. They're only interested in what fits their victim culture, and as a result, we're not able to address the real issues that might be at play, that do need to be dealt with. And it's one of the reasons that Marxism can never work because they're focused on the wrong things. In our text, in Philippians, Paul tells us that we should pursue truth and think about what is true and what is a positive, hopeful attitude. The victim culture does not do that. The victim culture breeds victimhood, a negative attitude, a cynical attitude. It focuses on a flawed view of justice that leaves us angry with no hope of resolution. And Paul gives us a counterpoint to that very thinking in the book of Philippians. Well, there's a second response to our question, how do we think when we face adversity and conflict in life? And that is, we should do the positive kinds of things Paul did. Notice what he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. So in what areas do we need to model Paul? He lists four things. We model him on what we have learned. We learned about living in grace versus living in the law. We learned about dealing with suffering and persecution in a healthy way. Remember, Paul was in prison at the time. He had no certainty about his future, but he gave it over to God and trusted him, and we can learn that from Paul. We also are to practice what he's received. We receive the gospel, the word of God, the peace and freedom that comes with that. And what you have heard, they heard of God's love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what they saw, they saw his joy in persecution, his boldness in sharing Christ, and his love for others. He said, model those things. Follow me. These are all things we can do as well. You know, if you're filling your mind with earthly things, we're going to act on them. We're learning that the more sexually explicit things teenagers are exposed to, the greater the likelihood they will be sexually active and catch an STD. This is true of TV programs they watch, Internet sites they have access to, and even what's on their iPad. Author and pastor John Piper says of this, we must not give a sexual image or impulse more than five seconds before we mount a violent counterattack with the mind. I mean that. Five seconds. In the first two seconds, we shout, no, get out of my head. In the next two seconds, we cry out, oh, God, in the name of Jesus, help me, save me now. I am yours. Good beginning. 
then the real battle begins. This is a mind war. The absolute necessity to get the image, the impulse out of your mind. How? John Piper speaking here still. Get a counter image into the mind. Fight, push back, strike, don't ease up. It must be an image that's so powerful that the other one cannot survive. There are lust-destroying images and thoughts. For example, you ever, in the first five seconds of temptation, demanded of your mind that it looks steadfastly at the crucified form of Jesus Christ? Picture this. You have seen a peekaboo blouse inviting further fantasy. If you, have, you have five seconds. No, get out of my mind. God help. Now immediately demand of your mind. You can do this by the Spirit, Romans 8.13. Demand of your mind to fix his gaze on Jesus on the cross. Use all your fantasizing power to see his lacerated back. Thirty-nine lashes left little flesh intact. He heaves with his breath up and down against the rough vertical strip beam of the cross, each breath sprinting into the lacerations. And the Lord gasps. And from time to time he screams out with intolerable pain. He tries to pull away from the wood and the massive spikes through his wrist into the nerve endings and he screams again and agony pushes up with his feet to give more release to his wrist. But the bones and the nerves and his pierced feet crushed against each other with anguish and he screams again. There is no relief. His throat is raw from screaming and thirst. He loses his breath and thinks he is suffocating and suddenly his body involuntarily gasps for air and all his injuries unite in pain. In torment, he forgets about the crowns of two-inch thorns and throws his head back in desperation, only to hit one of the thorns perpendicular against the cross beam and drive it half into his skull. His voice reaches a soprano pitch of pain and sobs break over his painful wrecked body as every cry more and more painful. Piper goes on and says, I'm not thinking about the blouse anymore. I'm thinking about Calgary. I'm thinking about the suffering that Jesus Christ took on my behalf because of my sin. And I praise him for his sacrificial act of love and mercy. The kind of sacrificial love that Paul challenges us to have the mind of Christ of. You see, Paul has told us that we can have peace in the worst of adversity. How did he know that that can happen? Because he himself experienced it. He was living it. He's in a Roman prison with peace and joy and contentment. And it's by learning and practicing what he learned and saw and heard that we too can have that. And one last point I'm going to close with here, and that is in response to our question, how are we to think when we face adversity and conflict in life and that we will positively experience the presence of God? And where Paul closes this section, and the peace of God will be with you. Paul has told us how to find peace by praying, by thinking right thoughts, by giving it over to God. And that peace of God which all transcends all understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. He also tells us as an Adam bone is the God of peace will be with us continually. God is there with us. We're not on our own. We need to meditate on that reality. J.I. Packer on meditation, he says this, Meditation is the activity of calling to mind, thinking over, dwelling on, applying to oneself the various thing one knows about the works and ways and purpose and promises of God. It is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eyes of God, by the help of God, as a means of communication with God. And its purpose is to clear one's mental and spiritual vision and to let his truth make its full and proper impact on one's hearts and minds. It's a matter of talking to oneself about God and oneself. And indeed it is. It's often a matter of arguing oneself. 
debating with yourself, reasoning with oneself, reason our way out of the moods and the doubts and the unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's love and power and grace. We fight the internal battle first. We have a whole large group of people that are saying, you must change, you must abandon your systems to what we have, and they're angry, and they're bitter, and they're aggressive, and they're vindictive, and most of them have never settled the anger and hurt and lack of peace in their own lives first. And Paul is saying, that's where it starts. This morning we asked the question, how are you to think when we face adversity and conflict in life? We looked at three things, that we should have positive, hopeful thoughts that focus on truth, that we should do the positive kinds of things that Paul did, and that we will positively experience the presence of God. You see, Elizabeth Sabadich Wolf, that I open with, she learned that the truth is no defense when it comes to our victim culture. All the facts were on her side, but she lost her case. Because we live in a world in which social justice conflicts with truth and as it stands will always trump truth, at least for now. Ultimately, truth will prevail. And I want to bring three things to mind. First of all, we must remain committed to the truth no matter what pressures we may face because somewhere along the way reality sets in and truth will prevail. Ultimately, it will always win out. Number two, the victim culture can never produce peace and reconciliation because it has no place for debate or differences or even forgiveness. The perceived offense is eternal, but Christ can and does forgive and offer peace that calls us to be that person ourselves. But also remember, God wants justice. How do I know that? He died on the cross. Why did he die? Because we are sinners that have no hope Apart from the sacrificial death, the only way to appease a holy God is for a punishment to be paid, and Christ paid it for us. But he also then wants to extend to us grace, and he calls us to extend it to others as well. During the 1982 Falkland Island conflict, some of you older people remember that, the British Royal Navy felt that its ships were safe from attack because of a sophisticated defense system that identified enemy missiles and it would shoot them down. An attack after attack was repelled with no damage to a British ship. And then the unexpected happened. The 3,500-ton destroyer HMS Sheffield was sunk by a single missile fired from an Argentine fighter jet. And later an investigation revealed that Sheffield's defenses did not pick up the incoming missile correctly, correctly identifying as a French-made Exocet. But the computer was programmed to ignore the Exocet as friendly. So the ship was sunk by a missile it saw coming and could have destroyed, but saw it as friendly. Men and women who want to find peace in our stressful society are like battleships floating on the open sea. A constant bombardment of sensual and emotional and ideological missiles are fired on us every single day. And if our defense system allows missiles, we should avoid to penetrate our minds we're in big trouble. We need to be on guard. We need to be aware that these concepts and these ideologies can sound appealing and they sound attractive, but they can lead to great destruction. 